Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Take out your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to actually go back and read verses uh, 23 and 25 today. So Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. Let us come before the Lord and pray for the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, we come here and we are assembled today again. All of us from different backgrounds, from different walks of life, with different experiences, all of us having our own lives, certainly intersecting at some points, but Lord, we all have on our own various experiences and needs. But with all that, Lord, we have come together for one purpose, and that is to glorify you, to worship you, Lord, that we are your people, Lord, you have assembled out of the multitude, that you have decided by your will to redeem us. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that we would come together as a church family and lift up our voices to you continually in praise. And that, Father, we would hear your word with gladness, Lord, that our hearts would be made ready to receive the word, and that, Lord, it would take root in our hearts, and that it would would grow up and produce much fruit. I pray, Lord God, you would have your way in our lives and that you would make our hearts and minds attentive today for the things that you would have us to know, the glory of your salvation. We thank you for that. And we give you all the praise and honor and glory through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So Romans chapter 1, excuse me, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 22 And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. This is the word of the Lord. Daniel Balash um, once wrote, Our peace and confidence are not to be found in our empirical holiness nor in our progress toward perfection, but in the alien righteousness of Christ. Jesus, that covers our sinfulness and alone makes us acceptable before God. So while you have your Bibles out, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It's just a couple pages back. Romans 1, verse 16, and the Apostle Paul writes, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. 
If you remember, the Apostle Paul began and wrote his letter to the Roman church for three basic reasons. Number one, he hoped to one day go further west in his ministry, and he had hoped that he would build a relationship with the Romans and be able to create a home base of operation there in Rome so that he can go further west into modern-day Europe. That was his aspirations to spread the gospel. Secondly, he also wrote this letter to mend the cultural and the political issues that were popping up in the, the Jewish and Gentile church in Rome. There were things that were happening that created tension in between the groups. What you need to realize is there's nothing new under the sun. You know, Different people groups tend to have different issues, and Paul was looking to rectify those things. But number three, and most importantly, Paul wrote this letter to make sure the Romans completely understood the gospel of Christ. The church at Rome, as we've talked about, was started by believers who were at Pentecost and heard Peter's first sermon, went back and began the church. But there was never an apostle that actually took leadership of that church and made sure that they were taught proper doctrine. And so Paul wanted to make sure, he heard of their faith, but he wanted to make sure that they truly had a handle on the gospel of grace. And the reason for that is really actually simple. The gospel is the fundamental truth of our faith. It is the truth of our faith. The gospel about who God is and then who we are in light of who God is and what God has done for us in spite of who we are is the most important truth in all of Christianity because if you don't have the gospel right, nothing else that you learn about Christianity is really going to matter. You can have degrees on the subject and it won't matter. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Torah. It doesn't matter if you've memorized all the first five books of the Bible. It doesn't matter if you have read books and understand Jewish life and culture. It doesn't matter how much you know about intertestamental Judaism. It doesn't matter if you have decided on your own to, to observe all of the feasts and the festivals so you can have a, a firsthand experience of Jewish life. It doesn't matter if you have learned to read the Bible in original languages. It doesn't matter if you are religious and how devoted you are and how sincere you might think you are. And it certainly doesn't matter what you think is going to happen in the end times. If you don't get the gospel right, everything else you learn about Christianity is just merely an academic pursuit. It's going to be nothing more than, than trivia. And so Paul wanted to make sure that the church at Rome had the gospel right. He wanted to make sure that, they, that if there was one thing that they understood, that it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul wanted to make sure they had it right. And he writes the book of Romans in order to completely unpack for them the gospel. And in this letter, Paul comprehensively does that. He explains what the gospel is. He explains what the gospel is does in the hope that it gives us, and then he explains how then we as Christians are to live in light of the truth of the gospel. And as a result of that, this letter of Romans has become the most comprehensive exhortation of the gospel in the entire Bible. There's not a better explanation found anywhere else, and because of that, it's obviously very profitable for everyone to, to study, because like the Romans, we need to clearly and unequivocally understand what the gospel is. In fact, look at how Paul begins his exposition of the gospel. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's a statement that we read and we go, yes, amen, and we agree with that. 
But we sometimes forget how profound this statement is that he is making right from the very beginning. The gospel is the dunamis of God, the, the power of God for salvation for those who believe. And this word dunamis is something that we, a word that we should be familiar with. And the reason why we should be familiar with it is from that word in the Greek, dunamis, that we get the word dynamite. That should shed a little bit of light on the implications of the word that, that's before us because it is powerful. So dunamis means literally a force, an energy or power. And what Paul is saying is the gospel is the very force of God, is the very energy of God, the very power of God. And it was given for a specific purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, Paul tells us for that purpose was for the salvation of those who believe. The gospel is the dunamis, the power of God for the salvation of those who, who put their trust in Christ. That's how important this message of the gospel is. It's the power of God to bring salvation. And even the word salvation is one that I think that we can easily overlook. It just seems kind of generic at times. But it's from the word soterion in the Greek, and it means deliverance, per, uh, uh, preservation, salvation. It means safety. In fact, it literally means the way Paul uses it here is, is, is this word salvation is God's rescue, which delivers us out of destruction and into his own safety. His salvation is the power of God to deliver us out of destruction and into the, to the very safe hands of God himself. And the reason why I'm taking time this morning to emphasize this and why we're going to linger this week on the subject of salvation as we reach this turning point in Paul's gospel is because I believe that many people have a view of salvation that is like their view of God. It is just simply way too small. Simply way too low. Many people's view of salvation is just simply oversimplified and way too small. And I think the reason why so many people in, in the Christian world today, why they get distracted by so many things in, in religion and in culture is because they fail to see how big and how important and how all-encompassing and how absolutely stunning God's salvation really is. I think that's why so many people get swept away by the social gospel and their need for creating equity in the world. I think this is the reason why so many people get swept away by the prosperity gospel, because for some reason, their understanding of salvation is not enough to satisfy them. They've got to go find some ways to, to have material gain satisfy their soul. I think this is why so many people get swept away by all kinds of things like critical theory, including critical race theory and critical gender theory and critical queer theory. Because God's salvation isn't enough in their minds to bring reconciliation to the world. It must be something else. I think this is why people get distracted by things like the Hebrew Roots Movement and the Torah Observant Movement. They don't get enough meaning of, in God's rescue, and so they pursue a form of legalism, thinking that's going to fulfill their lives and draw them closer to God. I think this is why so many people who call themselves Christians get caught up looking for new signs and, and fresh visions and looking for new subjective religious experiences because the idea of God setting them free just isn't enough for them. 
And so many people call themselves Christians. They fail to see how big and how all-encompassing God's salvation really is. You see, the thing is, is when, when you talk to most people and you ask them about salvation, for them it's just simply the forgiveness of sin. And they say that even almost with a disdain. It's just the forgiveness of sin. Right? Just ask the people around you what salvation is. And they will just say, talk about it in that terms. People will say, well, Jesus came in the world to die for our sins so we can be forgiven and go to heaven. As cavalierly and as simply as that. And that's great if, if, if it's coming out of the mouth of a five-year-old because now you know you're getting somewhere. But when you're talking to somebody who's been a Christian for 20 years and that's all they have to say, you know that there's, they still need meat and not just milk. But for many, that's the extent of it. In fact, I, I find it's the majority view. Right? That's the gospel in the simplest terms. Jesus came in the world to save us from our sins so we can go to heaven when we die. Salvation is just simply about forgiveness of sin, so we can get a ticket to go to heaven. And, and though it, it is true, right, that salvation does involve the forgiveness of sins, and it does involve the entrance into the kingdom of God and being able to then be in, present with the Lord, this is a simplistic view of salvation that leads many people to think that there has to be more than to the Christian life than just our salvation and the gospel. Because salvation then for most people's minds and hearts, isn't enough. You see, the problem is, is, is this view assumes some, some really strange things. It, it, it assumes that God created mankind as basically good. That mankind being good, and, but also being human, then occasionally falls down and makes some mistakes. And that mankind just needs a little help. That's really the dominating view. If you ask people to get to the heart of the matter, what's wrong with humanity, that's it. Right? And so Jesus came in the world simply just to kind of like forgive us. Right? That God, Jesus, said, that God came in, Jesus came in the world to straighten us up like a nanny, to kind of cover for us, to clean us up. Right? So we just simply would be forgiven and then we just invite Jesus in our heart and we go to heaven too. That's the point. And many people will make a profession of faith and they'll say that I love Jesus and hooray, my sins are forgiven. Right? But they still feel empty. They still feel like there's something missing and they're easily distracted by everything in the world and all the things that are assaulting the Christian world as, we, as it sits now. All this is because their understanding of what salvation is is just simply too small. We think that salvation is just simply a snap of a finger thing that God just did. You're saved. You're forgiven. It's done. This is why Paul begins where he does in Romans 1.18. He begins where he does with the overwhelming bad news of man's condition. This is why he takes so long to unpack this indictment against humanity. Salvation is much bigger than the simple casual forgiving of wrongdoing because the problem facing humanity is much bigger than good people simply making mistakes on occasion. What we find when we read the scriptures, when we actually read what the text says in Romans and the other letters of Paul, is that man isn't a little bit broken. He's radically depraved. He's dead, as he says, in his sins and trespasses. He knows that God exists, but denies him the worship and honor that's due to him. And mankind would rather worship false gods rather than the one true God. Even religious man is hypocritical. And selfish, it has a sub-biblical view of God and, and 
mankind is hard-hearted and self-serving. And mankind is at enmity with God. And because of that, right, God isn't just a little irritated with, with mankind. God's holy and righteous wrath burns against mankind. And not only is mankind at odds with God, but he's also at odds with everyone else around him. Look at how we treat each other. Right? Look what's happening right now in, you know, in Europe, in the Ukraine. People are, are, people are going to die, whether we get involved or whether we don't, right? It's one of those no-win situations. And we know that those who, who want us to get involved are probably the ones that have interest over there that want to be protected, not so much that they're going to do the right thing for those people, which is a whole different sermon, right? But look how we treat each other. We use each other. We abuse each other. We bear false witness against one another. We are the reason why, by the way, there's a thing called exploitation and racism and sexism and whatever ism that there is. Mankind is, is by nature untrustworthy and vile. Don't believe me? I'll just let you do a thought experiment or an actual experiment. When you get out of here, go to the ATM, punch in your, your number, pull out as much cash as you can, and then take that cash and just put it on the seat of your car, park your car, and then leave the windows down and the doors unlocked and the keys in ignition and go inside the store. Right, you know, right? <laughs> it's like everybody, that's dumb, right? What, why? Because we know, right? We all know. Mankind is thoroughly corrupt, right? Even the people that you know and you trust, suddenly things get really weird when that kind of stuff happens, right? Jesus, just, just look at what Paul even says in Romans chapter 3, that description of mankind and how he says that we use our words and our actions to inflict harm on other people. We've all been guilty of that. We've all had that done to us. Mankind's a little bit broken, needing a little bit of superglue to put us back together. Mankind isn't just a little bit dirty, needing some cosmic wet wipe to kind of clean the, the schmutz off of us. Mankind is radically depraved. And on top of that, we are then helpless and hopeless because we can't fix it on our own. It's not anything we can do. We can't change our own nature. We can't overcome the stain of our own sin. Even if we try really, really hard and try to... to to be nice to everybody. Let's see how long that lasts. We are thoroughly corrupt people whose faculties are corrupted by sin. Our hearts are, are stained by sin. Our minds, right? Our bodies. You know the reason why you continue to always think about the worst case scenarios? Because that's what sin does to your mind. It perpetually drives you to that place. Our minds, our bodies, our reasoning ability, our emotions, right? Even our wills are stained by sin we are depraved people who are capable of the good that we do because of the grace of god that restrains us from being as bad as we could be or want to be right we all still have those tendencies by the way every one of us has the temptation to throat punch somebody once in a while it happens right we all have that tendency within us that wants to say exactly what we feel and we want what those words that we say we want them to hurt. We want to cut people to the quick. We all have that temptation. Our problem is much bigger than, than most people think. But the solution is also bigger than most people think. And so salvation, God's rescue, which delivers believers out of the destruction and into his safety is much bigger than simply just came here to cover up our mistakes. 
And in light of that, in light of where we are now in Paul's letter, since we've reached the turning point in Paul's gospel, I wanted to take some time this morning before we move on to explore and to lay out for you just how big this salvation really is. I think this is a place for us to rest for a moment because as we pursue further in the gospel, we're going to talk about all of these subjects we're going to touch on today. And I'd like for you to have at least a familiarity and a handle on them. And so as a result, I'm going to lay the foundation for our understanding of salvation as we encounter its various facets throughout the, the letters of the Romans. And so we're not going to cover a new text today, but we're rather going to kind of, in a sense, review kind of where we've been, but also look forward to where we're going as we explore the salvation of God and what it entails. That way our minds and hearts can be captured by the gospel and not be not be enslaved to the vain philosophies and distracted by the things of this world. And so with that, forgiveness does, in fact, entail the forgiveness of sin. It does, right? I, I use that as the, the launching point, you know, but I think that it's more than what a lot oftentimes people think. It does entail the forgiveness of sin. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Part of salvation is the forgiveness of our sins. And the reason for that is because our sins must be forgiven. As we talked about, our sins must be dealt with. If God does not judge sin, then he's not just. So God can't just, he just can't simply just take our sin and then just go, ah, it's not a big deal. He can't just sweep it under the rug. Justice must be done. But what we do understand is that we don't have the ability on our own to make payment for our sins, or at least in live. This is why Christ suffered on the cross. He died in our place. He became the substitute for us, and by faith, our sin was imputed to him or credited to him as if it was his. It's not his, but it was credited to him. And because of that then, Christ bore in his body the penalty and the wrath of God that we deserve so that we could be set free from our sin. So we could legitimately be forgiven. See, we can't be forgiven unless somebody pays the debt and Christ is the one, our substitute, who made that possible. It is through Christ's work that we can be forgiven. But the, thing that's, but the thing is that salvation is not just forgiveness of sin. It is also imputed righteousness. This is one of the parts that gets missing from so many explanations of the gospel. It is the forgiveness of sin, but it's also imputed righteousness. When we put our faith in Christ, our sins are imputed or credited to Christ as if they were His. And then His righteousness is imputed or credited to us as if it's our own. This is what we call in theology double imputation. You don't need to remember that phrase, but you need to remember what it does. Our sins are credited to Christ and His, His righteousness is given to us. You see, the requirement for mankind to be right with God is not simply to be sinless. It requires more than that. It's not just to be absent of sin. We must be positively right with God, positively righteous. Fellowship with God requires that we are indeed righteous before Him. 
We, he, we see this in, where Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, And for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we can become what? The righteousness of God. Christ took our sins, and then he gives us his righteousness by faith. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 we read, For in the righteousness of God, for in it, the, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We're given that righteous, that alien righteousness that's not our own, but is granted to us by faith in Christ. And then Romans 2.13, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. We need to be perfect before God, righteous before Him. Scripture makes it clear for us to have fellowship with God. We must be perfect in every way before God, but we know we can't ever attain that. That is something that's impossible for us to do. The Bible says none is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if we're ever going to then have what's required for us to be right with God, then somebody else has to do it. And that's what we have in Christ. Not only did he die for our sins, but he lived for our righteousness. He succeeded where we failed. He fulfilled the covenant of works that Adam failed to fulfill. He fulfilled the law that the nation of Israel failed to keep. Jesus earned in his life through his human obedience the righteous standing that Adam, that he was endowed with, lost in the garden. The righteous standing required to be in fellowship with God. It always comes back to the garden, by the way. In our second London Baptist Confession of Faith, in the fourth chapter, in, uh, in paragraphs two and three, it reads, after God made all other creatures, he created humanity, and he made them male and female with rational and immoral souls, excuse me, rational and immortal souls, thereby making them suited to that life lived unto God for which he was created. Our confession clearly states that we were created for God's purposes. We were created to live to God. And, he, and it further says they were made in the image of God, being endowed with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. They had the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it. God, mankind originally had the righteousness that he needed to have fellowship with God. It further says, even so, they could still transgress the law because they were left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. And then it says, in addition to the law written on their hearts, they received the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As long as they obeyed this command, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Adam and Eve, for a brief time, had the righteous requirements met to be able to have fellowship with God. They were perfect, they were stainless, but they were positively righteous as well. They did what was right in the eyes of God. They were, he was created like us to be with God and to enjoy direct fellowship with God, but he failed to keep this righteous standing when he sinned and he became unrighteous in all of humanity along with him. Christ then came as we will find later in Romans, that he is the second Adam. He fulfilled what Adam failed to do. He fulfilled the covenant of works and earned by his life the righteousness that we need to have fellowship with God. And by faith then, 
This righteousness is given to us, not by something we do, but as a gift. It's a righteousness that's like our own, but it's not from us. It's from Him. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. Salvation is more than simply forgiveness of sin. But it's also more than imputed righteousness as well. Salvation is not simply a repair of the problem of humanity. Salvation globally is the restoration of the created order. You see, a lot of people think that, okay, you know, God created the world and mankind messed it up and then now God's just trying to put a band-aid on That's not the point of what God's doing in history. Going back to Adam, we were created in God's image so that we could be connected to him and have a relationship and communion with him. We were created by God for God. But, that, but sin destroyed that relationship and it, mar- it marred the entire created order. But Christ, in his righteous fulfillment of what Adam did, uh, failed to do, and through his substitutionary work on the cross, he is restoring mankind back into the original relationship that he was created for to have with God. This is why when we, we see when Christ died that the veil was torn in the temple. See, oftentimes we hear that the veil was torn, but we forget what the, what the veil symbolized. What the veil symbolized was the barrier between God and man at the edge of the garden. Because on the veil, what is what? A cherubim guarding the way to where? Into the presence of God. The Holy of Holies is the representation of the Garden of Eden. We've been separated from God. You see, what God's doing is he's restoring us back to what it was supposed to be. When Christ died, the veil was torn from top to bottom as a sign that Christ was restoring the world back to God. He was restoring God's created order. This is why we fight for important creation order issues. The world wants to rebel against those things. That's why it hates marriage. It hates things like like the the roles of gender and gender itself. It's it's denying and trying to destroy the image of God in the created order where we as Christians, everywhere we go, we're trying to bring about the restoration of God's created order. Which, by the way, points forward to the fulfillment of the purpose of God eschatology or the end times you see the point of eschatology or the point of the end times isn't the end of the world right see everybody's in love with doomsday stuff right everybody's fascinated by that everybody talks about the end of the world that's not the point that we're looking for we're looking for the end times but that but 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 not the doom of the world but the culmination of god's restorative work as he brings the world back to restoration to his order I don't care which end times scheme that you subscribe to. One thing that all Christians do agree on is that Christ is going to return. He's going to return in glory. And when he does, he's going to finish his redemptive work. And that work results then ultimately in mankind and God being restored together forever in eternity and creation itself being redeemed. As Paul says that creation longs for that. In Revelation 21 we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with who? With man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's the restoration of the created order 
And, and, and it says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things that have gone wrong have passed away. God's work of salvation is the restoration of the created order. So when you tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not trying to tell them, join my little club so we can come sing songs together on Sunday morning. You are doing the work of God who is redeeming the world to himself. That's why we must have a big view of salvation. But salvation is also a miraculous work of God. Again, we think of salvation simply as this decision to forgive. Okay, you're forgiven. Never mind. It's okay. You're forgiven. It's so much more than that. It is so much more than simply a decision to bestow righteousness on humanity. Oh, you guys have suffered long enough. Okay, you're all right now. It, simply, it isn't simply just God coming and cleaning up after us. Salvation is the miraculous work of God. A miraculous work that rivals the miracle of creation itself. We don't ever think in these terms. But the salvation of your soul is a miracle that rivals the miracle of creation itself. You see, the gospel isn't Jesus came into the world to make bad people good again. He came to make dead people alive. That's the miracle. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't sick. You weren't infirmed. You weren't kind of broken. You were dead. He says you were dead in the trespasses and sins once you once walked. Fall in the course of the world. Fall in the prince, the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature by our very nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, our problem is not simply that we were good people who occasionally did bad things. We were dead people, spiritually dead, whose only life that we did have was to live for sin. We were spiritually dead, children of wrath, with no ability to even turn to God on our own. The image isn't that we were sick and then somehow we got made well, is that we were dead and by God's supernatural power made alive. As Paul continues, he said, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Your salvation, my salvation, is not mere behavior modification. It's a radical transformation in the very nature of who you are. That's why the Bible uses words like born again. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. He's not just saying things to say things. He's not just making riddles just to make riddles. He is saying something really important there. You must be reborn. Right? Or how about this one? You are to be a new creation. This is an accidental language. This is a point that, that's being made in the Gospels, that you were something else. You are now something different, a new creation. It's not just a change in your direction. It's not a change in our attitude. It's not even a change in our behavior. It's a radical transformation of the very nature of who we are. 
We were one thing before Christ. We are something completely different after Christ. This is why the imagery of life and death is so fitting for us. It's because we were not just dead, but we were like rotted corpses with no chance of life. Or, or how about this? We were just dry bones. If that's an apropos illustration, God supernaturally in Christ comes to us who were dead and then gives us new life and animates us again, makes us alive again. This is the imagery of Christ's own resurrection that it points to. The dead are made alive. Super, salvation is a miraculous work of God, and it is also rooted in the character and the nature of God. Throughout the gospel, we've been encountering God's justice, that God is just and he upholds his justice and he punishes sin because he must. Why? Because he's just. We've also encountered God's righteousness. He is perfect in every conceivable way. God's righteousness is his moral perfection, but it's also his right action towards mankind, as we've talked about. But then it's also the gift of righteousness he gives to those who put faith in Christ. But we've also seen God's holiness. We sing about that, right? We talk about that. What does holiness mean? It means God is far and away above us. He's far and away different from us. That he's glorious in every possible respect. That he is worthy of all praise, honor, and adoration and glory. That he is of the, he's of the greatest value in all of the universe. There's none like him. That's why we say things like that. But in the gospel and in salvation, we also encounter other attributes like his love. What a glorious attribute for God to have that he is the God of love. Ephesians chapter 2 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. <laughs> God brings salvation to us, not because he owes it to us, not because he wants to toy with us, because he loves us. This is, this is the baffling thing for me. This is the one that I struggle with. Like, God being awesome and big and creative and all-powerful, that fits within my confines of my imagination. God loving the likes of me, that's, that's the one I, I struggle with because I understand who He is in, in light of who I am, or who, he, uh, who I am in light of who He is. I see that His act of love is just simply an act of love, and that's it. In fact, as John says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have the moment they believe, by the way, eternal life. Or Paul again even says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Salvation reveals the depths of God's love for us. That by itself should never, should, should cause us to forever walk in contemplation of how big salvation really is. Because I'm going to tell you, to love the likes of you is a great big love. And I'm not being a jerk about that. I mean that seriously. If you understand who you are in light of who God is and His holiness and righteousness, the kind of love that it took to love you is a big love. What we see in the gospel and in salvation is an overwhelming love of God. And God does not save us because we deserve it. God does not save us because we've earned it. He saves us simply because He loves us. And I think that if you're a parent, you kind of have a hint of that, right? Because there's an enduring, unending love when you're a parent for your kids, even when they do something really, really stupid. 
and our kids are capable of doing really, really stupid things. But, but, but even then, there's limitations to that kind of love. The love that God has for us is we've completely surrendered all rights. In fact, that's why the, uh, the story of the prodigal son is so apropos. God's love is undeserved. And that points then to, his next, to, to the next attribute, which is God's grace. Paul says there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Salvation is rooted directly in God's grace. And I want you to notice, like in both of these passages, Paul connects grace to the word gift, which is the point. God saved us not because we deserved it, but in spite of the fact that we don't, which leads to the definition of grace. Grace is simply receiving the good things from God that we don't deserve. That's what grace is. It's getting the good things from God that we have no rights to or claim on. We don't deserve life. We don't deserve joy. We don't deserve the love of family. We don't deserve to live in a free country. We don't, we don't deserve this beautiful, warm sun that we have today. But God graciously gives us those things in spite of us. And by the way, He does that for all of mankind. That's what we call common grace. All of mankind experiences lots of good things at the hand of God. Mankind who spits in the face of God, who rebels against God continually day after day, experiences God's grace, something that they don't deserve. But then God also has what's called special grace, where He rescues us from sin and makes us righteous and restores us back into relationship with Him as a gift of His grace. Not only does God, God's, not only is God gracious, He's abounding in grace. Just think about who you are even after being a Christian. He has oceans of grace for you that are never exhausted. This, by the way, is the hope that I have every day. If it was not for this, I would just, I would just, I would have given up a long time ago. This is why, why Paul Washer's spiritual penalty box sermon was so important to me, right? Because he says, you know, we have a tendency is when we fall short, we fall down. We think, oh, I failed God and he's going to hate me now because I've done this. And then I need to run from God or make some penance or do something, you know, to where I can finally maybe put myself in a spiritual penalty box and lock myself away until finally, maybe when God's not mad, I can come out and like reconnect with him. And that's not even the picture of God's grace. God's grace is you fall down and you make a mess of things and you turn immediately and look heavenward and go, Lord, save me. I'm leaning on the same grace that I was leaning on when I first got here. I can't do it, Lord. I need your grace new today. Grace alone ought to be enough for us to walk every day in awe and amazement of God's salvation. Grace alone should drive us to the streets and to our friends and our community members and say, you just need to hear, the, hear about Jesus Christ. Grace is receiving good that we don't deserve, but then mercy is the exact opposite of that. Mercy is not receiving the punishment we do deserve. Humanly speaking, when we talk about mercy, we think of people throwing themselves on the mercy of the court. Why? Because they know they're guilty. All that's left is to beg for mercy, right? 
hopefully then they could be spared the punishment that they rightly deserve. That's how it is between us and God. As we have discovered what we deserve from God, what we rightly have earned from God is his justice and his wrath against us for our sins. That's what we deserve right now in this moment. That's what we have earned. In fact, the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages, what you have earned, your rightful payment is death. But God has been merciful to us, not giving to us what we rightly deserve. You woke up this morning because God's merciful. But Paul says again in Ephesians chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. God is rich in mercy toward us, withholding the punishment that we rightly deserve. In fact, remember Paul says in Romans, we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is, was to show God's righteousness because of His divine forbearance. He passed over former sins. The idea of forbearance bears with it the idea of mercy because forbearance is that. God is merciful to those who have faith in Christ. God is being merciful by withholding punishment, right? But he's also being merciful right now to those who are alive in this moment who have not come to faith in Christ. Do you realize that? Because God owes them right now in this moment death for their sins. In fact, if, if God was not merciful, then you would wake up tomorrow and a bunch of people would be found dead in their beds in the morning for the sins they committed yesterday. But in His mercy, God is demonstrating His kindness in an effort to lead them to repentance. And so salvation is rooted in who God is, in His character and nature. But it's also, it is also the work of the triune God. The thing that we need to remember is salvation isn't simply an act of goodwill towards men. As we said before, it's a miraculous work of God. It is a miraculous, supernatural, powerful work of God. And not just part of God, but all of God. You see, the problem of sin and our rebellion and our spiritual death is so great that the solution is monumental in proportion and requires the power of the triune God to rectify. Which, by the way, has been the plan all along. You see, our salvation is not some outworking of God responding to man's failure in history. It's not like God created man and said, hey, let's just see what they're going to do. Oh, well, they messed that up. We better hurry up and get there and, and fix that. You see, with God, it, there is no plan B or plan C. Our salvation is the outworking of God's plan that he created in eternity past. It's called the covenant of redemption. You see, the triune God covenanted within himself a plan of redemption that God the Father decreed and ordained the redemption of his elect people. And he promised these people to be a bride to the Son and that he would then send the Son to redeem the people. And then God the Son, he earned that redemption for his people through his life, his ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven back to the Father. He literally purchased our redemption. And He and the Father then send the Holy Spirit who then comes and applies redemption 
in the individual believer. You see, God himself, the Holy Spirit, comes to us and convicts us of our sin, enlightens our minds to the truth of the gospel, and opens our hearts and regenerates us and our spirits. And then once we put our faith in him, works in us, conforming us into the image of Christ. God the Father ordains redemption. God the Son purchases redemption. And the Holy Spirit applies that redemption. Salvation is the work of the entire triune God. And that being said, for us here and now, as it relates to how we worship and how we explain the gospel, salvation in time and space is centered on Christ's redemptive work. This is why Christ is the object of our faith, by the way. Jesus Christ must always be the object of your faith. Not the church. Not your good deeds. Not your sense of feeling good about who you are. The object of your faith is none other than Jesus Christ. Because he's the one who accomplishes salvation. Christ is the one who in his earthly ministry did all that was required to redeem us. And it begins with him being our high priest and mediator. You see, a high priest is one who mediates between God and man. That's what the high priest did. That's what the high priests in the, the Levitical system pointed to. He mediated and interceded between God and man. Christ is the great high priest because he permanently in his life and work brought us forever back into the presence of God. Paul says in Hebrews chapter 4, since then we have, had, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, as a result of his high priestly work, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Paul continues in Hebrews chapter 9, he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of all the good things that have to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ is our high priest who makes intercession between us and God and secures for us not a temporary redemption, but an eternal redemption. That is why he's the great high priest. And he is also then the mercy seat, as we talked about last week. Right? The mercy seat was the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was located in the most holy place. And this spot symbolized the meeting place of God and man. This is where the priests would come and make atonement for the sins of man. It was the meeting place once a year between God and man. Well, Christ in a physical sense and a spiritual sense became the meeting place not once a year, but permanently between God and man. In Christ, we are reconciled permanently to God. But he's also still more than that. Not only is he the place of atonement, and not only is he the high priest that makes atonement, he is the sacrificial lamb through which atonement comes. He is the perfect spotless lamb of God who was slain. 
See, Jesus is not just a one-dimensional character for us in history. He's also the Lamb of God. John the Baptist, upon seeing Christ, declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Passover Lamb that was foretold about and imaged in the Passover celebration from the time of Egypt. He's also the Lamb of Revelation. John writes in Revelation chapter 5, And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. Christ is the sacrificial lamb, but he's also the blood atonement. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Period. End of story. Right? This is why we can't have sins just swept under the rug. Ah, don't worry about it. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But then we're told in Romans chapter 3 that we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Christ himself is the blood atonement that was given to appease the wrath of God. Jesus spilled his own blood and drank down the entire cup of God's wrath and said it was finished so that we could be forgiven. This, by the way, is why we sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, our forgiveness is not simply accomplished by sweeping sin under the rug. Our forgiveness came at an extraordinarily high price. And that was the blood of the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Christ is our high priest, and He is the mercy seat, and He is the sacrificial Lamb and the blood atonement. And that's why we agree when Jesus says the words, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Period. End of story. No exceptions. Our salvation centers in time and space on His redemptive work, and that's why our faith is in Him. But understand, in Christ, we don't have partial salvation. We have full, complete salvation. This is why I wrestle with people who want to tell me that you can lose your salvation. The salvation that was earned by Christ was not a partial salvation. It's a complete salvation. And we need to realize that we are saved in every possible way through God's redemption. And that first way, as we've been talking about, is justification. Paul says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We talked about last week, justification is the legal declaration of God. That we are declared not only innocent, but righteous before God. We are declared judicially, legally righteous. To be justified is where our sins are paid for, and Christ's righteousness is then credited to us as if it's our own, so that we can stand before God without guilt 
or shame. Now, we don't stand before God on our own accord. We stand because of what Christ has done for us. And it's through justification that we are saved from the penalty of sin. Right? The penalty of sin no longer holds sway over us. This is the truth that we can walk in continually, even when we fall down and make a mess of things. As Paul says, there is therefore, what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is condemnation? It is the exact opposite of justification. If you were justified, then you were not condemned. And to be justified, you must be in Christ. And Paul, and Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus. The penalty of our sin does not hold sway over us anymore. That means the greatest problem that you will ever face as a human being has been solved permanently and forever. No matter whatever else happens in this life. We go to war with Russia over, over the, the, the Ukraine. If the, our country decides to embrace full-on socialism, if we decide to allow critical race theory to like take over every part of our, our, our lives, doesn't matter if we become a communist country where it becomes illegal to be a Christian. There is still, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It cannot be taken away from you. But not only is this salvation about justification, it's also about reconciliation. And reconciliation is where we have peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is not simply just an absence of conflict. This is a shalom kind of peace that, that, that the Bible talks about. This is where God's goodness is aimed toward us. This is where we live in a tranquil, loving, peaceful relationship with God. When you say that there's peace at home, you don't want the kind of peace that at home means we're not, we're not throwing darts at each other, right? You want the kind of peace at home where everybody's happy and joyful. This is the kind of peace we enjoy with God. Because why? We've been reconciled to God. And more than that, and this is the part that so many of us Christians forget, is not only we reconciled with God, but we are reconciled with our fellow man. God not only makes peace between us and him, he makes peace between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ and the rest of the world. The things that divide us have been done away with in Christ. They're gone Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 8, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are reconciled with God and man in Christ. And the thing that we need to realize is that this isn't something we need to earn or work for. This is something we just simply need to accept and live in. Right? If we would just stop as brothers and sisters in Christ and just live in the unity we have in Christ, a lot of the things that the world tells us is wrong with us would just simply go away. If we would just remember and recognize that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, a lot of the things that, that the world pushes on us would simply go away. We are reconciled to God and man. And it's not a superficial, it's not a superficial reconciliation. It's a full reconciliation as family through adoption. You see, salvation is not only a peace treaty with God, but it's being adopted into the family of God. 
This is one of the truths that I had learned later on in my Christian life. I mean, I heard it, but I never thought in these terms. Not only am I saved, I'm adopted. This is such a, an important truth to live in. We were former enemies of God, right? But now we're made family. It's not that God just says, okay, I tolerate your existence now, right? It's not that I just, you know, all right, you're welcome in the kingdom, but just stay over there. I don't even want to see you, right? That's not how it is. We are welcomed in the kingdom as one of his children, one of his beloved children. You know how you feel when you haven't seen your kids in like a week because they've been gone from camp, right? You know how when you haven't seen your grandchildren in a while and you're like, you're excited? Right? This is what I'm talking about. We are welcomed into the family of God. John tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Paul further even says in Romans chapter 8, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That right there should radically alter how you perceive your salvation. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children, listen to this, and have children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. We are heirs with Christ. Through salvation, we become the children of God and become a family with one another. By the way, that's what church is. Church isn't just us being together in a building. Church is us being family together even outside of this building. Paul calls it a household, not because it's a building, but a household is considered to be a family. We've been adopted together into the same family. And again, this is something we need to just simply accept and walk in. And then we need to then live it out by loving one another and being patient with one another and bearing each other's burdens. But sometimes it's hard, right? Sometimes it's hard to live this Christian life. We make a mess of things. We do sin and, and fall down. Well, our salvation also includes God's work of sanctification. Sanctification is the present tense, ongoing work of the Holy Spirit where He is where he's helping us and we are being saved from the power of sin. See, justification is where you're, you're saved from the penalty of sin. Through the, through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, you're being progressively saved from the power of sin. This is where the Holy Spirit comes and transforms us from the inside out, little by little, conforming us into the image of Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that we do cooperate with, by the way. We cooperate through grace-driven effort to to pursue holiness in our own lives, to be obedient, not because we're trying to make God love us, but because we, we love Him. And that we then seek to put sin to death because we know how deadly sin is. And this is the ongoing work of salvation that lasts, by the way, for the rest of our life. Right? God doesn't leave us to our own devices, that He is with us, convicting of us our sins, changing us, shaping us, remaking our affections. If you knew if you've been a Christian for any long length of time at all and you look back and see who you used to be, you can see there's a marked difference in what you love now than what you used to love before. The sin you once loved, you have learned to hate and the, and the, 
and the God you once hated, you learn to love. It doesn't mean that you don't fall into it, but you certainly recognize it faster. This is the ongoing work that God does, but it will be completed in our glorification. Glorification is the future work where we are finally permanently saved from the presence of sin. And the thing is about this future work is that it's not up in the air. It's a foregone conclusion. Paul says that we've already been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Bless you. That's the hope that you have, right? Is that not only have you been saved from the penalty of sin, and are you being saved from the power of sin, but that one day you'll be completely permanently saved from the presence of sin where it never affects you anymore. This is the culmination of God's redemptive work. We're finally and fully set free where creation itself has been restored and we all live in harmony with God and we do so with one another the way that we were created to. Salvation, of the salvation of God is more than just simply Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven. It's so much bigger than that. It's more overwhelming than you can possibly imagine at times. It's so much more than simply just having, you know, our boo-boos erased. But in all this, as big and monumental as it is, this entire salvation that comes from God, from heaven, by His power, this miraculous work is not received by us by our efforts and work, it is received simply by faith in Christ. Right? Suddenly then, our faith in Christ becomes more important than you might ever imagine. But also then, your love for God should grow because you see the gift that God has given you, this monumental gift that God has given you, was not given on the basis of your skin color was not given on the basis of the fact that you did some nice things for some people in history somewhere. It was given despite you, and you receive it simply by faith in Christ. And that's the point of this entire gospel. That's what we're going to see as we go throughout Romans, that God, by His will, and by His grace, and by His mercy, and by His love, and by His miraculous power, decided that you... We're the object of his affection, and he loves you. And all you do then to walk in the newness of life, to have your sins forgiven, to be cleared of the penalty of sin, and to be progressively freed from the power of sin, and to have the hope of being freed from the presence of sin, all your part in the whole equation is simply this, is to believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel, and that is it. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so my call to you then is if you have believed, rejoice in that belief. Rejoice. No matter what happens, you have more than your share to be grateful for. But if you haven't then, my call to you is repent and believe the gospel. And if you need help with that, then get a hold of me or one of the deacons in the church and we'll be happy to walk you through the scriptures and how you can believe in Christ and be saved. Let me pray.
You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.